Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. Would you turn with me, accompany me to the text that will be in this morning, which is John chapter 20, the Gospel of John chapter 20. The title of our message, as you might already know, is Encountering the Resurrected Lord, Thomas. And we're going to be talking about the encounter that Jesus had post-resurrection with a fascinating character, a disciple named Thomas. And we read this account, of course, as I said, in John chapter 20 here. We'll be starting, we'll read in just a moment, we'll start in verse uh, 24. But as I was thinking about this text, I don't know if um, you, if you ever tried to relate the experience you've had with something that you love dearly, something that impacted you in your own life, and tried to relate that experience to someone else. You know how difficult it is to, to, to cast this experience onto someone else. For instance, you're, you're, you're talking up this film that you saw. You're talking up this movie. I get a lot of movie recommendations, and I don't know what to do with them because it's usually movie recommendations for me. I, I usually just hear, oh, there's like two hours and eight minutes or something. You want to get into my time. I don't know if I have time for that. But often people will say, oh, it's such a good movie. But, it, oh, it was so sad. Or it was a very hard-to-watch movie. And it's like, you want me to watch that? But the, what they're trying to do, right, is they're trying to transfer the experience they had to you. And so what, one of the hardest things you might have experienced by, by that is that it's so hard to transfer an experience that's deeply personal to you. It's hard to transfer, to share it, or even to, to replicate it for yourself. The first time you might have heard that song or where you were standing when you, when you, when you saw the Dodgers you know, win the World Series, those situations in which there's so much going on, there's, there's the tone, there's the mood of the room, there's that experience that you bear. You, there's many times you just have to conclude, oh, you just had to be there. You had to experience it for yourself. And usually, as I mentioned, a lot of films, and it's usually the job of actors as well, to cast that experience to someone else, to help someone experience what someone's going through. You know, there's that, that style of, of acting, which is method acting, where they usually go deep down into their inward. They, they take this piece of trauma from when they were a childhood, and they, they bring it to the surface to let them break out in this emotional way on stage or on screen. That's why, you know, actors are a little bit weird, maybe. But their, their role is for experience. They're trying to relate an experience. And isn't it so true as well with spiritual experience? That it's, it's very hard sometimes to put a, a spiritual experience into words. 
William James, who's a, who was a 19th century pragmatist, he wrote a whole book. He wasn't a believer, but he wrote a whole book on what, what was called the varieties of religious experience, where he wanted to understand from a, certainly a social scientist, social science kind of point of view, what is religious experience. And basically, one of his conclusions is that experience itself, our deeply personal experiences, are so hard to replicate and so hard to share with other people. He says this. He says, says, knowledge about life is one thing, but effective occupation of a place in life with its dynamic currents passing through your being is another. And he went even further. He went as so far as to say that a lot of the shared experiences that religious people have are usually just all individual kind of scattered experience that we all kind of force under a general umbrella. But is that true for the Christian necessarily? I would love to, to push back on this claim by, by William James by coming to the point of the resurrection of Christ. Because no matter where you are as a Christian, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what socioeconomic status you've come from, and if you're a Christian, you have had an experience with a person. And we all share that experience as Christians with the risen Lord. And so when we come to today's text, we see the disciples having seen and experienced the risen Lord. We see them also trying to communicate this experience to someone who wasn't there, namely a disciple named Thomas. And so we'll, let's go ahead and read our text this morning in John chapter 20, and then we'll, we'll kind of discuss what's going on here. In verse 24, we read, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Jesus had just appeared to the disciples in a room a week before. And so the, the other disciples, in verse 25, told him, we have seen the Lord. They've seen the risen Lord. But Thomas said to them, quote, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, verse 26, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were unlocked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he came to Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not believe, disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We see here in this text that Thomas didn't believe when the disciples were trying to relate this experience to him, but it was an encounter with the resurrected Lord that brought him to a confession of faith. And so we're going to look at Thomas's doubt. We're going to look at Jesus's appearance to them. We're also going to see Thomas's confession and how we really do experience the risen Lord when we confess the name of Christ. So first of all, let's look at Thomas's doubt. Thomas's doubt. Who was Thomas necessarily? He's not a very popular Bible figure necessarily. And why should we care about this particular encounter of his with the Lord? Well, Thomas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. 
He wasn't as prominent a character as, as John or, or James or, or Peter, but we could probably relate to him in some other ways. Um, he is famous for being Doubting Thomas, as we see in the story. There's, you know, the character of Doubting Thomas. Don't be a Doubting Thomas. We use it in everyday speech. But Thomas kind of figured in other stories, and he spoke up a couple more times, as recorded by John in the Gospel of John. Before um, Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead, Thomas said in John chapter 11, verse 16, he said, let us go that we might also die with him. Thomas wasn't expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. It almost seems some kind of like a sardonic joke. Let's go, then we might die. So it's just, Thomas is a little bit dense in that way. In John 14, when Jesus began more talking more frankly about his death and the, his, his future resurrection, he told the disciples, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And in response to Jesus' words, or Jesus also said, and you also know the way I am going. And in response to Jesus' words, Thomas, he didn't really get it, and he said in verse 5 of John 14, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And so he was a little bit obtuse in some ways. We, we see that about his character, and you might relate a little bit, where you know, you're, you're hearing spiritual truth, and you're like, I, I don't quite understand that. That seemed to be Thomas' status. The other thing we don't, um, the, the, what we don't know though about Thomas is why he wasn't in the room the first time with the disciples when, when Jesus appeared to them as recorded in John chapter 20 just in the section before we're reading right now. We might guess that, you know, maybe Thomas, he was getting some coffee or, or just on an errand or something like that. But here's something we, we should consider that there likely was fear about gathering together. The disciples, all their entire life for, for three years was Jesus. And when he was crucified, they've lost their leader. The great fear came upon them. Jesus had already predicted the effect that his absence and his death would have on his disciples when he said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, he told them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, Quote, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Thomas might have been like one of those sheep in that, in that analogy, where he was scattered and he, for fear he didn't want to be around the disciples because the Romans just crucified his leader. And so for, for that reason, we can imagine that Thomas's unbelief, the origins of his doubt, when the disciples were telling him that the Lord was risen, the origins of his doubt were probably from fear or probably from despair. It is not so often the reason for our own disbelief or for people that you're sharing the gospel with and the reason they don't believe is not lack of evidence or, or a lack of some kind of intellectual assent. They might, they might know about God. They might know the goodness of God, but it's grief, it's despair that's, that's deep down inside of them. I remember going to a debate um, be, be, and it was actually more of a, a Christian um, creation versus kind of evolution debate, but it turned to the problem of evil. And the, the, the man who was on the evolution side, he, he was an agnostic named uh, Michael, uh, I believe his name was Michael Ruse. And he said this, he said, well, I, I don't believe in the goodness of God because of the fact of childhood cancer. How can a good God do this? And it was, it was a, I, I realized that it was a point of despair and it was a point of grief in his own life that kept him from believing in this. 
And so that was, seemed to be similar to what Thomas was experiencing. He says, don't give me hope. Don't give me this kind of reason to believe. And it was out of despair. And so Thomas wasn't having the disciples' story. He did not believe them. And he went so far as to say, unless I am able to grasp the hands and touch the wounds of Jesus, I will never believe. And that was Thomas's ultimatum. But of course, the story doesn't end there. It, it transcends into something amazing where the Lord himself appears to Thomas. So what did Jesus do in response to Thomas's doubt to his unbelief? Jesus reveals himself in a special way. And as we'll see, more specifically, Jesus reveals his wounds, the wounds that he endured on the cross when he was crucified. And so we, we see Jesus revealing himself in um, kind of three distinct ways. Number one, Jesus identifies himself when he appears. Take a look at chapter uh, 20, verses 26 through 27. We see this eight days later, after uh, eight days after the resurrection, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, looking at Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So what is Jesus doing? Well, first of all, he's identifying himself. And that's really what happened when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. In John chapter 20, verse 20, just a few verses back, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, he identified himself, not by saying, hey, I'm Jesus, do you recognize me? But he showed his wounds. In verse 20, it says, when he had said this, peace be with you, when he greeted the disciples in his first appearance, he showed them his hands and his side. Without being asked, he showed them his wounds, if you will, his scars. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It was that moment, it, that was the moment of recognition for the disciples because they saw the wounds of Jesus. And so showing his hands and feet, that wasn't Thomas's own idea, but it must have been something that the disciples related to him, saying, we saw the Lord, we saw the scars, we saw where the spear went through, we saw where the nails went through into the cross. And so by that we knew it was Christ himself, and not some kind of replica or imposter. And so that was Jesus' kind of greeting to Thomas, hey, here are, my, here are my scars, go ahead and touch me. And if you notice, just something as an aside, in these appearances of Jesus, as, as Pastor Robert said uh, last week, it's not you know, the disciples who are seeking out Jesus and who said, oh, look, we found Jesus. It's Jesus who's revealing himself post-resurrection to the disciples, and he's doing it in such fascinating ways. Remember last week, Jesus revealed himself. that The disciples knew that it was Jesus because he said, hey, go fish on the other side of that boat. And they caught so many fish that they're like, that was the Lord on the shore, wasn't it? And it was revealed to them by the things Jesus did. And so in Jesus' appearances to Thomas, he also shows, just as a general aside, he shows a couple fascinating things about himself, that he appeared in a room again when the doors were locked. He just can reappear, or disappear and reappear kind of at will. This is just an amazing place for, for the resurrected Lord to, amazing thing for the resurrected Lord to do. And also he shows that he had knowledge exactly of what Thomas said. He's like, 
I wasn't in the room when you were you know, complaining and, and disbelieving, but I know exactly what your concern was. I know that what you said. Jesus' omniscience was, was kind of on display as well. So Jesus identifies himself, but also, secondly, Jesus proves by this appearance, he proves his physical resurrection. He, res- he had a resurrection body. It was a physical body. And thus, he invited Thomas to do what he had asked for. He said, hey, touch, put, your, put your hands in my side. Feel these scars. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is not more than a just uh, anecdotal story. It's really a foundational truth of Christianity. And when we go outside of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, we really leave the, the farthest boundaries even of the Christian faith. Jesus went as so far to say in um, sorry, Luke chapter 24, verse 39, he said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus was saying, I'm not a phantom. I'm not a ghost. I'm not translucent. I'm flesh and blood. And I'm really risen from the dead. We've talked about um, the, the verity of the, of the resurrection at, at length before, but um, elsewhere we see John also place special emphasis on the fact that Jesus did come in the flesh and you can touch him while he was on this earth. And that was the same as we see in the, his resurrected state. Uh, in John chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the writer, who's the same writer as his gospel, says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and have touched with our hands. He's talking about the whole experience they had with the risen Lord and the, the interactions and encounters they had with Him. And he says, it's this Christ that we testify to you. This really happened. But the, fir- uh, the third way in which Jesus reveals Himself is he really shows the cost of our sins and the wounds that he bore. It may seem strange to you as you're reading this text that Jesus is showing his scars. It may be, seem strange to you that Jesus even has scars. You're like, well, he, God rose him from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead of his own uh, deity and his own power. Why does he still have these scars? He could have a new body. He can do amazing things. He can appear in a locked room. Why is it that he still has scars? But if you think about really what those scars in his hands and in his side represent, it's really more glorious than anything. Because the fact that Christ bears these scars means that Christ endured and he suffered for our sins. That Christ took our sin upon himself and that he took our own forgiveness and redemption seriously. In fact, this was the goal for which Christ took on human flesh. These very scars. Because by these scars, when Christ was crucified, he took on the sins of the world. He took on your sin and my sin, that we might be forgiven of them. Those are the, what his scars mean. And they're proof, really, of Christ's victory over death about death itself, you know, the final end from our, from our human perspective, Jesus can say, oh, it's, it's just a scar. But Jesus not only had 
these scars post-resurrection while he was talking and interacting with the disciples on the earth, but think about the fact that he also bodily ascended to heaven with those scars, and he is praised forever for them. John gives a heavenly depiction in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 6, of Christ, and it's Christ pictured as a lamb. And he says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Other translations say a lamb standing who who kind of bears the wounds. And it goes on, he goes on, um, or the, the crowd around them worshiping the lamb continues to say in verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The scars that Christ bears even in heaven shows that this is a God who is not aloof from his people, but this is a God who is serious about his people and serious about sin. It's by those scars that were redeemed from our sin. So when Jesus reaches out his hands, he shows his side to Thomas and he invites him to touch. This turns into Thomas's confession. In verse 28, we read this, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. At this moment, Thomas t- turns from, from a doubting disciple to a confessing Christian. He breaks out with the confession of the Lord. If you've seen art of this particular moment in Scripture, Thomas is often depicted in art as actually poking the Lord. You see, um, I was looking at, there's a painting called The Incredulity of St. Thomas by Michelangelo Caravaggio, and he's, he's just going to town. He's like straight in the wound of Jesus, and the other disciples are looking. And it's a, it's a fascinating picture. But we're not actually told in Scripture that Thomas took up Jesus on this offer. We're not told that he touched them, but we are told about the end to which Jesus was attempting to bring Thomas. He was attempting to bring them into a state of belief, a confession of faith out of the conviction of his heart. When Thomas saw Jesus, he saw him risen from the dead. He sees his scars. He breaks out in a confession that's really a high point in the Gospel of John. It's this transcendent confession in which Thomas just simply exclaims, My Lord and my God. My Master and my God. Maybe you haven't. You really thought about the, the fact as a Christian, you know, we, we say it often that Jesus rose from the dead, but it's, it's a central component of the saving gospel message that we believe in our resurrected Lord. Every Christian really must believe that Jesus rose from the dead, as then I mentioned also rose bodily from the dead. It's central to the teaching of Christianity, not just because, you know, this is the doctrine somebody made up, but also because it's central to salvation. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, in a verse that you might already uh, be familiar with or have memorized, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Isn't that what Thomas is doing here? He's confessing the risen Lord. He's confessing 
Christ, and he effectively, or Jesus really corners Thomas with these facts, with his very presence, with the reality of his resurrection. And when Thomas is given this kind of directive, he's, he's pinned to the wall with this fact, and Jesus gives him this exhortation, do not disbelieve, but believe. And so Thomas confesses correctly. He confesses Jesus as Lord. This shows that Christ is more than just religious teacher, great moral man, good guy. He is risen Lord. And that changes everything if you believe that. So, what, what does this all you know, have to do? Have to, how does this have to speak to our Christian lives today and the, the doubt that so often we struggle with in so many stages of our Christian life? Well, I, let me just close with kind of, by close, I mean extended conclusion. Um, let me just conclude in some ways with kind of four things that we could take away from what we learn about Jesus' encounter with Thomas that I think are are comforting for us to consider. Number one would be that even the apostles doubted, and we should kind of take comfort in that. Sometimes when we doubt as Christians, we feel so bad of like, oh, you know what, I don't want to share this fact that, you know, I'm I'm struggling with believing the certain doctrine of Scripture, believing this happens, or even believing that, that God is good or that, or that my sins are forgiven. Sometimes we struggle through seasons of doubt. But we should take comfort that Thomas wasn't completely convinced of these claims at first, but eventually he came around when he was confronted with some of the evidence and he was confronted with, with Jesus himself and he came around to faith. And you might think to yourself, hey, well, that was easy. You know, Jesus literally showed up in Thomas's life. You know, he, he showed up bodily. And, but did you know that the disciples of Jesus even doubted after they had seen the resurrection, resurrected Lord? In Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, um, it, it says, when they saw him, the resurrected Lord, they worshiped him, but some doubted. How can you even doubt at that point? But we realize that it's not simply sensing or experiencing with our, with our eyes, but it's grasping and clinging to with faith. The truth is, often as Christians, and we see this even in the lives of the apostles, as, they, as the church was born and, and the, the church grew, is, you know, there, there's struggles with doubt. And I think that's very much a part of the Christian life. We live in tension sometimes with doubts. I was reading a, a good book on, on apologetics titled Apologetics at the Cross, and they make this point. They say most people today, believers and unbelievers alike, alike live in the space between absolute faith and absolute doubt. And don't you, don't you sometimes feel that way? It's like, it's, uh, gosh, we, we're like that, that man that Jesus was going to heal, and, and the man said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I think that's a great prayer. To say, Lord, reduce my doubts, increase my faith. But secondly, not only did the apostles also doubt, but we should note the disposition of God. That God is compassionate with our doubts. God was compassionate with Thomas's doubt. Even though Thomas was insolent, insolent in some ways, and he kind of gave God this ultimatum, he gave the disciples the fact that, hey, I'll, I'll never believe unless this happens. God revealed himself, Christ revealed himself in a very specific way. It wasn't immediate, it was 
eight days later, but Christ still showed Himself. And we should take that lesson to heart because we should take our doubts really to the Lord. We should come to God. We should come to His Word. Because the worst thing is to think, oh, you know what, I'm not sure about God. I'm not sure about His existence. And then to leave that discussion and distract ourselves with with TV or, or something like that and just stop thinking about spiritual things. That's not the answer to doubt. The answer to doubt is to keep going back to the Scripture, to look at the evidence of the resurrection, to go to God in prayer and say, God, would you reveal yourself to me? And not only is God compassionate with our doubts, but we should be compassionate with struggles and doubts with others in our own life. Loved ones who might have doubts. Newer Christians that are around us who are maybe struggling with with certain teachings of the Christian faith. We're told in Jude 22, have mercy on those who doubt. But I also want to qualify and, and clarify that God is, yes, He's compassionate with our struggles and with our doubts, but number three, we should not remain in unbelief. Notice, again, Jesus' charge to Thomas. Jesus shows himself. He reveals himself in a special way. And his charge to Thomas is this. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Another translation might put it, do not be an unbeliever, but a believer. Don't continue to wallow in this doubt. Don't continue to deny the facts as they're presented to you. Don't continue to avoid the teaching of Scripture that's given out on Sunday because it'll make your heart harder and it'll leave you down the path of permanent unbelief. It'll lead you away from the path of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. But you know what? What's Crazy, especially even in the academy, is that doubt is often seen as some kind of virtue. I was taking a, um, when I was going to UC Riverside, I took a seminar-style class on, um, um, what was it, romanticism and cosmopolitanism, really fascinating stuff. But one of the things that we, we were reading was the interesting narrative of Olada Equiano, and there's some doubt. It was actually, it's a fascinating kind of slave narrative from the 18th century, but there's a lot of doubt about what he says, about the facts that he's giving, and and who he says he is, and where he says he came from in Africa. And my professor at the time, you know, this is kind of a graduate level seminar style class, and she was kind of saying, well, you know what, will we ever know if who he says he is? Well, you know, it doesn't really matter. And I was just thinking, like, this is the academy. They're saying, you know, these kind of things don't matter. But that's because it's fashionable today, right, to to doubt, to continue to question. It's considered maybe intellectually mature or or some sort of authentic to persist in a a state of doubt and, and rejection. But just remember, when you're choosing doubt, by choice, when you're, when you're leaving things that you might well reasonably believe and you're choosing to doubt, you're, you're leaving yourself open to a life of instability. James chapter 1, verse 6 says, The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. How exhausting a perpetual state of doubt is. We, should, we would do well to answer Jesus' exhortation when we're confronted with the gospel to say, Okay, Lord, like, I, I believe. And to persist in you know, a constant state of doubt is dangerous to us. C.H. Spurgeon said this, Chronic doubt is a sin 
that is not to be tolerated. I know we have struggles and we have doubts, but the end goal of the Christian life for seekers and doubters should be discovery, should be truth, should be something solid, should be faith. The end goal should be faith and less and less doubt in our own life. Our prayer, even if we are Christians, is to have right more and more faith, less and less doubt. And that's how we mature as Christians. But number four, and closing, we each need to experience the resurrected Lord. I opened this morning with you know, a few comments on how hard it is to transfer experience. And it's really true in a, in a spiritual sense, in that we cannot transfer our own you know, conversion story to, to another's. We can't transfer our faith to another. We each have to have our own encounter with Christ where we confess Him. So in other words, we can't live off the faith of our parents or our spouse or even our, our spiritual leaders. We need to have our own faith. That's what Thomas's need was, to confess Christ for himself. Yes, again, Jesus or Thomas had the uh, privilege of seeing Jesus in bodily resurrection. He saw the scars himself. He identified him, and Jesus presented himself to this. But Jesus gives him, and he gives you and me this wonderful truth. In our closing verse in the section, John chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Don't misunderstand the impact of this verse or the the import of this particular statement that Jesus is giving, this beatitude. Don't misunderstand of like, hey, Jesus is saying, oh, Thomas, you've believed because you've seen me. But, you know, if, if, if you have to have faith or something like that, like, good for you, like, if you have a loss of facts or evidence, just fill that in with a putty of faith and you'll be okay. No, Jesus is saying that the end goal of Thomas's experience with this was faith. In reality, what he was trying to get Thomas to do was not touch his wounds. We don't even know if that even happened. The end goal was for him to confess Christ for us to approach God and see Himself to be proven trustworthy and to attach ourselves with that to Him is faith. And that's the end goal that we have today. So in other words, Jesus is saying the experience that Thomas is having when he's confessing the Lord, we can have that same experience today because it's through faith. This is the unifying factor for all Christians no matter where you travel in the world, no matter um, what, what people groups you're, you're around, if they're a Christian, they will have this experience in that they will have been confronted with the risen Lord. Jesus calls us to faith just as He called Thomas to faith. And in a very real way, Jesus calls us to faith not by presenting Himself physically and bodily, but He presents Himself through the Word of God. He presents Himself through Scripture. 
That means every time the Gospel is preached, every time that Christ is shared and the Bible is taught, even in the context of a church or in an interpersonal context, God is inviting us to faith, to grasp on to His trustworthiness and to believe in Him. And our faith is just as real and yes, just as legitimate as Thomas's faith in that time. The end goal for all of us is the same. Let me close by reading a couple verses from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8-9 through 9, that note this. And it's really a profound statement from Peter. He says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we again thank You for the words of this Scripture. We thank You for the resurrection and its power. And Lord, we are simply standing in awe of Your power to defeat sin and death. And I ask for all of us that we would be shaken to the core by the reality of Your resurrection. That Lord, we would simply agree with Thomas 2,000 years ago who simply exclaimed, My Lord and my God. I pray for anyone in here who does not have that assurance, does not have that faith, does not have that blessed experience that You spoke of, that they would simply come to You, that they would implore You to forgive their sins, that they would confess You as their Lord and Master, and they would confess Your rising from the dead. And Lord, I pray for all of us that our lives would be marked by more and more faith, by less and less doubt, knowing that the blessed life is the life of believing, is the life of resting in the assurance in the reality of Your resurrection. And so in this time, we recognize Your payment for sin is glorious. Your resurrection is glorious. And what else can we do but simply worship you with our mouths? In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.